The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, knock those rocks out of your head and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 374 with guests Glenn Brock and Brian Noyce, recorded live Wednesday, June 4th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Teller, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who says all he really wants is a warm chair, a kind word, and global domination. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut here. It's our Thursday show. Richard is not here right now, but he'll be here for the interview in just a few minutes. Uh, our... TechEd Europe 2008 Barcelona sweepstakes is underway. You can win airfare to Barcelona, Spain, a hotel room free, and admission to TechEd Developer, the dates of which are November 10th through 14th. And for the next uh, seven and a half weeks or so, you'll be able to go to .netrocks.com slash Barcelona and uh, do a quick register with us. Uh, we want a little demographic information from you. And then you get to answer a question once a week about the previous week's show or one of the previous week's shows. It's a very simple question. If you're listening and you're paying attention, you'll probably know the answer to it. Every week on Tuesday, we're going to pick a winner for that week. And the winner of that week gets a fabulous Tom Bin brain bag. Thank you to Tom Bin at TomBin.com. Richard and I both have brain bags. We've had them for years, and not one thread is frayed on these brain bags. They're made out of some ridiculously uh, high-tech material that just doesn't rip or fray or come loose. It's just like fabric steel. That's what it's like. 
So the weekly winners will then go into a drawing on the last day, October 20th, where we will pick a winner from those eight to go to Barcelona. Also, if you're interested in working in New York City for a year and uh, being put up in an apartment in Manhattan, free, rent-free for a year, working with some great people, the New York Tour, we're calling it an infusion, you want to uh, send me an email, carl at franklins.net. There's also some opportunities in Dubai. That's right, Dubai. Uh, Fabulous work going on over there in the Middle East, the United Arab Emirates. And if you're also interested in doing any surface application work, just uh, send me an email, carl at franklins.net. I'll pass it along to the right person. Uh, in lieu of all that stuff, we're going to forego Better Know a Framework and email till Richard gets back. And uh, now I'd like to introduce this session that we did at TechEd. And uh, we just did this in the fishbowl in the back room. It was an uh, interview with Glenn Block and Brian Noyes on PRISM, codename PRISM Project. Uh, very interesting stuff. And we basically thought we had lost this file. And all of a sudden, it showed up or we found it or pulled our head out of wherever it was where the sun doesn't shine. And we found this file and, ah, we're so so sorry that it's a little late in coming, but the information is still fresh and it's a great product. And uh, enjoy. Now let's go to that interview. Hey, this is Carl Franklin. We're backstage at the TechEd Fishbowl. I'm here with Richard Campbell. This is our podcasting room. You like it? It's a little dark. It's got no roof, but it's got fabric walls and it's kind of quiet. It's fairly quiet. I mean, yeah, it's good. And, and I understand you ordered this. Well, I, I was part of us working out what was going to be in the fishbowl and how we wanted it. I said, we well, you know, we really need a room to record podcasts. It doesn't need to be on stage and it doesn't need to have windows. It just is a quiet spot where we can record. Oh, well done, sir. So we're here with Glenn Block and Brian Noyes. Hi, guys. Hi, Carl. Hey, how's it going? Hey, pretty good. And we're here to talk about PRISM. What is PRISM? PRISM is a set of guidance that we're doing in Patterns and Practices for building composite applications with WPF. So define composite. A composite application is an application that um, basically at runtime is dynamically composing itself from a set of different parts um, that represent the different pieces of the system. And the sum of the parts represent the whole. So when you look at a composite, the application itself is actually very light and pretty dumb. It just knows how to go and find these things, discover them, load them up, and then it gives them access to a set of services so that they can actually drive the interaction of the application. How is that different from just a multi-tier, multi-leveled application? So... With a multi-tiered application, you've got a layering concept, right? You're layering, you've got your data layer, you've got your business layer, you've got your UI. This is more of like a a horizontal split, where I'm splitting out the functionality, the different portions of the system. Now, I may further split each of those into different logical tiers, um, but it's just this idea that I've now taken the app itself rather than the tiers, like when I say the app so itself, so like multiple applications rather than multiple tiers of one application. Exactly, that's exactly right. Another way you could think of this, instead of horizontal, uh, is vertical slices. So a lot of times when we, we draw up an ar- architecture diagram, we'll break out functional areas by vertical slices, and <clears throat> the partitioning is slicing out things like orders, customers into different modules, functions that all tie together. They've got some business layer of their own. They got data access of their own. They have some presentation of their own. We want to develop those independently, but there still has to be some glue that ties them together at the top. 
Now, where does the com- does the composite it means that it comes together at the UI? Because you were talking about WPF as being a central player in this. Sure. Is that what we're talking about? We are compositing UI functionality. We view, but composites, of course, are bigger than just UI. Like I think of the Vista sidebar. Mm-hmm. Is that a good composite application where you got little apps running? It, well, the idea of a composite is that you're taking these different pieces and they all become part of one integrated experience. With the Vista sidebar, it's more kind of like a portal. I have these different pieces that are sitting that are really independent on they their really own They really have right. no, nothing exactly. to do with each other. They don't have any knowledge. So the, the idea of a composite is although these things are, and we, we talk about loose coupling whenever we talk about composites. Sure. All the pieces are highly loosely coupled, yet they can actually communicate and work with each other as if they were one big monolithic application. Uh, I'm almost thinking this is like a plug-in model that I could just keep plugging more apps into it. That's definitely a part of it. So some of the stuff we have in there, one of the aspects we have is module loading. And the module loading mechanism basically becomes a plug-in implementation where you can, we've got different strategies for how we're going to load things up. You can do it statically. You can do it dynamically through a directory, lo- scanning a directory. You can do it based on config. But that part of it is definitely a plug-in style architecture. That's how things get loaded into the composite. And, of course, this is a smart client technology. If we're talking WPF, we're talking about deploying something to the client. And I was immediately thinking, what are the shared services across all of this? But that would end up being almost abstracted from this entirely. So there are shared services. And one of the concepts that that we use in patterns and practices when we talk about composites and achieving this loose coupling as a pattern, design pattern, called um, dependency injection or inversion of control. And what that allows is I can have services in a shared place that actually get pushed in. I can request that I need access to a service. And the notion of a service is not necessarily a web service. It's some piece of functionality that I have a contract to access. I'm not responsible, though, for the lifetime or knowing where that thing actually exists. I just want to ask for it and get it. And this is how composites are able to have that kind of tight communication. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what's different about composite than just a loosely coupled multi-tier application and with, with different, different object layers that represent the different sort of things that you can do in the application. The biggest thing, to, to put it in overly simplistic terms, it's all about references. So if you don't hold a reference to the thing that you use, you're kind of inherently loosely coupled. So it's really about loose coupling is, is the big difference. You can have a composite. So, you know, we had discussions with the WPF design team as we got started, and they were kind of like, what are you guys doing? WPF is already a composite technology. You b- break things down into user controls and custom controls, and you compose those into a UI. So, yes, that's a form of composite. But what we're doing is making it so the the composite parts don't have to know about each other. They can still give a single coherent experience to the user, but they uh, don't know directly about each other through references. And I guess that's why, Richard, you brought up plugins, because the only thing that's known about a plugin is its interface. And I imagine there's something similar going on here. So what happens and what's very different, you know, if I just give a story, let's just give a story to explain what a composite would be. If I load a composite and I have no modules defined, I pretty much will end up with an empty screen. I won't see anything. As soon as that composite starts to come to life and those modules are discovered and loaded, well, just by the nature of the module loading, that still doesn't mean anything will appear on the screen. Because you mentioned the interface idea. With these composites, the interface is actually a very simple interface. It's just an initialized method. Just to load it up. Exactly. But once it loads, it's able to use those services to then say, okay, 
composite. I know you have a place on the screen called X. So and how I've does got it know view. that? Through it, another interface or? It knows that because of the fact that, well, first of all, there are some conventions. Okay. So you need to know that, hey, somebody's registered a, re- there's a communication mechanism outside of the application itself, which oh, is okay. the people that build it. Yeah, so specifically that's where those shared services that Richard mentioned come back in. Is one of our shared services, if you will, is called a region manager. And a region a, manager? A region manager. Okay. So when you're defining your top-level UI, you can specify regions on the screen is the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually more flexible than that, but that's a, a easy simplification, is you draw rectangles on the screen that are within your main window. And you say, these are the plug points that if, if a module wants to present UI, these are the places they can put it. And we haven't really talked about the benefit. I mean, the benefit of loose coupling and, and abstraction is obvious. Is that really just what this is? Is it's just an abstraction at the UI la- at the UI layer? A big part of this is really just about maintainability. I've got okay. complex applications. It's also about facilitating the multiple teams. I mean, the, the benefit of composites come out when I have different teams that need to be able to independently work on the components of the system. Sure, sure. That makes perfect sense, especially if those teams are in different locations and totally in different places. Yeah. Is this really about being able to do more application development simultaneously that we have are able to facilitate more teams. Often we get to that mythical man month scenario where you just can't add any more people to the team and have any more effective results. It, it is too. I mean, that's definitely something it enables. It's not the only reason to do this It's stuff. not why PRISM exists. Right. I mean, really, PRISM is about controlling and, and eliminating complexity. Okay. So it's about managing your application, putting, you know, people think about architecture in terms of the layers and the relationships between the layers. This really focuses inside the presentation layer and says, how do I decompose my presentation layer into manageable parts that are loosely coupled and can be div- divided across teams or even... A, individuals within a team so that I can develop that and not end up with a big tangled spaghetti mess. And is it easy to swap them in and out? Is that is that another great feature of this? Is it that- is because, you know, and, and, and basically the idea is that modularity as a design concept is the ability of a system to swap those pieces. So that is exactly right. I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik, and uh, let you know that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik. You know, summer is in full swing now, and you're probably lying on the beach. But our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites, RAD Controls for WPF and RAD Controls for Silverlight? That's right. If you started building next-generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base, and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, they have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. Yeah, I'm just thinking through all the possibilities here because there's a lot of things that can go on now that we can introduce uh, other modules. Heck, I could even build competing modules. It, it, I could have you know, version 1 and version 2 of the same module loaded at once. Am I, am I crazy? Is that really what we're going 
I mean, the, the idea here is, yes, that, I mean, so with power comes responsibility. Of there, course. There, there certainly are some dangers here. Um, and not, I wouldn't say dangers, but, you know, there needs to be some level of control, um, especially if you're introducing third-party modules into the system. In fact, you know, in, in going through the development, we, we sort of, we didn't officially define personas, but we talked about things in terms of personas to address this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. When you're putting together a composite app like this, you're typically going to have someone that we call a shell developer. The shell is the name for that top level window that kind of ties everything together. Right. That's the person we see as the person who has the big picture that says, I know I, I only want to load version one of this and version three of that. So I'm going to configure things or make it so that that happens and I don't have those conflicts. So there's still got to be someone with the big picture to make sure all this dynamic stuff happens correctly. And is he sort of the gatekeeper then of saying who gets what piece of real estate or what are the constraints on size and behavior? In some environments, that might actually be the same person who's developing the system. But yeah. yes, that, that could be that person who's reserving the locations. I mean, the idea here really really is as a developer, I build my UI, I throw it up to the, to the surface, but I don't know exactly how it's going to look or be displayed. Now, you mentioned WPF as being a central part of this, but I imagine this architecture works with any sort of development technology. It does, but WPF does introduce some interesting capabilities that were not easy to do with the previous technologies. Such as? Well, for example, WPF has a very rich um, templating mechanism. So now I can do things like instead of throwing up views, which are user controls to my UI, I can actually have models that represent the data that needs to be represented, and I can throw those up to the UI and have something that comes along and leverages WPF's template capability to then render that appropriately. So you have sort of placeholders while you're working on the UI, and then exactly. you can swap in the real stuff when it becomes right. Available. So WPF itself has its own forms of decoupling like this, where you know your pure UI definition can be separated from the data that feeds it, and then you use data binding to tie those together. So those Sweet. were the those were the kind of things that we tried to you know look at and said, okay, we had a way of doing it for Windows Forms with the composite UI application block, but WPF is a real different yeah, beast, right. and we need to design something that doesn't hinder you from using those capabilities and fits well with the mechanisms of WPF. Now, when I think of the composite UI application block, I think of, um, I think of people who wanted to write one sort of application and then, you know, morph it to the web and Windows without, you know, with minimal impact. But it really didn't turn out that way, did it? No, we, we took many of the same patterns and applied them in the web client software factory, but we did find that CAB was very tightly coupled um, you know, there were, it could work conceivably on the web, but it, wouldn't, it was not optimized in any way and would have been a very poor experience. Stateful versus stateless. I mean, that's just a big one Absolutely. To, to be able to abstract away. Yeah, and then, of course, I'm thinking a little Silverlight has possibilities here now, but uh, probably not yet. That sounds like yeah. Silverlight's not shipping yet. You guys are trying to get things done. Silverlight, right. too. Yeah, Silverlight, Silverlight too. yeah. Always, always pretty much means Silverlight too when you talk about this stuff. But uh, definitely, that was a you know something that comes up a lot. It's a target that people desire, but we had to you know set scope, get something we could ship in the near term, and and so we focus purely on WPF at this point. Yeah, so there is a large cry from the community that this is great, but we also want it for for Silverlight. But like you mentioned, that's not released yet. We are releasing in the very near future, and just trying to get something out there so that. People uh, can start using it and give us feedback on did we do it right before we commit to this Silverlight platform as well. So, um, but on the Silverlight question, one of the things is, as Brian mentioned, we did design Prism so that um, we would not couple to WPF other than the areas that we needed to. 
meaning we didn't just couple to WPF just because we could. And because of that, and because of a, the design itself is much lighter than things we've done in the past. We've designed it to not be invasive, um, to be very easy for you to pick and choose the things you want to use. Um, one of the people in our community um, who actually works at Microsoft, he's one of our evangelists, he's, he's very much into the idea of having Prism for Silverlight. And there's already a contrib project um, at Prism Contrib on CodePlex that actually has a version of Prism working in Silverlight. So we know that that's actually achievable. And that would be like the beta 2 of, uh, beta of Silverlight 2 that, that, uh, that's that, that they're applying that to. Why is WPF in this at all? I mean, it sounds like a great application architecture, but w- what's relevant about having WPF involved? Well, at some point you have to tie into the UI, right? And, and that was where tuning to the, to the platform you know, came into play is that ultimately it is still about getting stuff in the sc- on the screen in the user's face in a loosely coupled fashion. So at the point where you need to inject it in the screen, you've got to tie yourself to the UI technology. And with XAML, and, it's just very easy to take a a container, a place in that hierarchy tree and just swap it in and out. Right, and there's also the fact that as a technology, WPF has new capabilities but also poses new challenges. So, you know, when we look at composite apps, you know, when we, when we said, even in the initial description, I said how this is for building composite apps, those are a solution. What are they a solution to? So as customers build WPF applications, they're coming into the same challenges and new challenges that they did in the WinForms world when they built complex WinForm apps. Right. So Prism is really really addressing, well, how can I now take that model to WPF, get those same benefits, because, hey, I'm suffering from those same challenges and even some new ones. You know I'm having flashbacks to? Boy, I'm dating myself here. I'm the client wizard from, like, VB5 that would generate a... a uh, The sample app that was either... uh, uh, I can't remember the name of it. The MDI. Yeah, MDI. Yeah, the MDI, MDI, SDI. Everybody was like, whoa. Yeah, we had the same thing. I came C++ background. We had the MFC app wizard, and and it keeps resurfacing. You know, it is that same idea, but we're we're kind of a step back from that. For one thing, at this point, we don't have any tooling on top of this. Right. It's more patterns and libraries that we give you. For the patterns are the tools. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Let's get a concrete example of a good candidate for a composite application, and then specifically how you can communicate across these composite things. Because I guess there's some conventions you mentioned, there's services. W- what does that look like for the So the, the canonical example I like to use is for an ERP system. Right. An ERP system has various subsystems. And the one thing that's very interesting about an ERP system is I'll navigate to those systems, and then what will happen is on the right side of the screen, if I have a navigation bar on the left side, it takes over the screen, and it looks like its own application. Right. And if I go from, like, you know, purchasing, or I'm looking at orders, or I'm looking at customers, or I'm looking at inventory, it's going to look entirely different. And typically, you're passing in a key to that module anyway, you know, with customer detail, boom, that comes up. That's all keyed off a single customer ID. And orders drill down the same way. Exactly. And I might have multiple orders that are displaying or multiple customers that are displaying. With any luck, you're building some kind of common UI metaphor between these different modules. But they are going to be actually differently rendered UIs that are, are dependent from the module. Well, definitely. I mean, hopefully you're building a consistent 
thing. Right. You know, I would, I would I, hope. Again, that comes back to the you know power and responsibility thing. Yeah. If you're going to divide the effort across teams, there's not no uh, you know nothing we can do to enforce consistent consistency across modules. But I do I do think that WPF because it does have that strong templating model, it's pretty yes. easy for us to build core templates yes. for and, the UI. And, and that's the a, that's a perfect example of the kind of things we talked about early on. Going okay, what's different about WPF that we want to support here, and, right. and specifically the designer developer interaction, the idea that there may be a designer in the mix defining that common look and feel, making sure that could still tie in with these dynamically provided views, and luckily all the data templating and, and those features of WPF make that very easy. So, and, and, and if you, and realistic, you know, if, if you if you look at the capabilities of WPF and you talk about, you know, talking about what you were just saying about um, controlling the look and feel, if you go towards a pure model approach, you actually stop having your developers worry about look and feel at all. Right, that's what So exactly you actually can help to address that challenge. Now, that requires a bit of a paradigm shift, but the technology absolutely enables that paradigm shift. And we saw that firsthand as we were building um, you know, this, this effort. And you're seeing it more and more. I think the designer is becoming this, his own person, her own person. And absolutely, you know, there are success stories around this. It's working. Well, there Even are, though the tooling right? isn't one hundred percent perfect. They're still doing it. Yeah, I mean, you guys interviewed Rocky about his. I was thinking his, of Rocky. Yeah, so I had lunch with him yesterday, and we were talking about that same same situation. Um, you know, yes, there's success stories there, but the the real state of the union right now in that space is there's not a lot of designer designer type people that have the XAML skills sure. to re- really make. It. There's still a lot of wireframing and you know just throwing something over the fence that's going on. In fact, we experienced that on the team because we went from you know a developer created WPF app to one that we wanted to at least sort of look WPF-ish. Right. So we got some designers in the mix, but it was more the throwing designs over the fence style of thing. They were XAML based but they weren't just plug into the app kind but of But it thing. does feel like you've abstracted sort of horizontally here that normally we have these vertical modules that are developed by developers, but the UI part can be lifted away and worked on by a designer via the template sort of approach. And that can fairly easily be carried module to module. So I might get an early module done get it into the designer's hands and have him come away with a set of templates that then can be handed to the other module developers to get that look and feel starting to be showing up across the, uh, the spectrum. Absolutely. So back to the uh, whole idea of, of communicating across these modules, what are some of the services that that are available just in the sort of the standard configuration? Sure. So this was one of those areas that WPF has its own mechanisms for this. Okay. And so we first looked at, you know, can we just let them use the WPF mechanisms? Is that sufficient? What are the WPF mechanisms? Uh, specifically, routed events and routed commands are two facilities in, in WPF. The problem with those in terms of what we're doing is that they're directly tied to the visual tree, the composition of elements okay, sure. that the, define the, the view. Yeah. And here we're trying to have this decoupling across different views contributed by different modules without references to one another. Uh, Good luck with that. And the other aspect, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) sounds pretty pie in the sky, but I think we actually pull it off. Um, The other piece of that is testability. If you you care about testability and decoupling in a well-designed app, you want your logic code to be as separated from the UI as possible. Well, I just said that their only forms of communication are very tightly coupled to the UI through its element tree. So to, to pull it off, basically, we came up with two facilities, some enhancements to the built-in commands and a separate eventing system uh, that lets you deal with all that stuff outside the visual tree. So what are, the, what are those enhancements? 
Let's just dig into it. So the first thing we've done is we've looked at scenarios where I have um, some multiple orders, let's say, of information, and I've got a common toolbar. And those things live in two separate worlds. They don't know about each other. But they need a way to communicate so that if I've got, let's say, a globalized submit button for that order, that whatever current order I'm selecting, for example, I only want that submit button to be enabled or disabled based on whether or not it's valid. It's, I also want to have things like submit all that will go and submit all of the orders that are out there. So we've created a thing called a composite command. And what the composite command essentially is, is just a command that has a child collection of commands. The nice thing about WPF is that it's only bound to the notion of an I command. So I can create whatever kinds of commands I want. So composite commands can even have other composite commands within them. So that's the first scenario. And what that addresses is that, you know, when I fire off on the parent, all the children fire. When any one of the children um, are disabled, as far as being able to execute, it automatically disables the parent. So in Nice. The, Yep, it's real nice. So when the UI translates into automatically these buttons enabling and disabling without me having to do a lot of manual work. And keeping the business logic out of the UI. Yeah, exactly. So the two main things are our command support is the fact that the logic can be far separated from the UI, uh, fairly far separated, but definitely not directly tied to the view. And the other one is this composition idea that you can have many targets. WPF built-in routed commands, there's only ever one target that's ever consulted, both to decide whether it's enabled or not and to execute. There may be multiple points of hookup, but once one of them answers, the, the others are not there's consulted. There's no bubbling going on. And I, right. that sounds like almost a scaling decision. This is one of those things is as the app complexity goes up, you'd get really brutalized if that stuff continued. And we're actually tunneling here. I mean, oh, the notion okay. of the composite is really a tunneling. You're pushing down. You're not pushing up. You're not bubbling. So that was something that was not handled um, natively. The second thing we looked at was, as I start, if I, if I move away from the native WPF commands, what might happen is I get into writing a lot of little command objects that implement I command. Right. That results in a maintainability problem because now I have all this logic that's distributed in all these little objects and I get an explosion of commands. And really, if I'm doing any kind of separated presentation patterns, which we do promote, which is you know designing for testability, then I might have a presenter. And a lot of the state that that command actually needs to do what it needs to do resides within that presenter. So we've done a very simple thing, but sometimes Sometimes the simplest things are, you know, provide the most benefit is we've created a thing called a delegate command. Hmm. And a delegate command essentially allows you to use Lambda expressions and delegate off who is the handler of that command. And it's generic, so it's strongly typed. So I can specify that the parameters must be of type so-and-so. This is the eventing thing you were just talking about. This is not the eventing thing. This is yet. not the eventing thing. Yeah, actually, this is the commanding. So the commands built into WPF, you know, there is a specific, you can pass parameters, but it's based on object. Right. So we tried to, you know, we wanted to get some type safety back in there. And this ties into the same notion as WPF commands. It's based on the same interface as WPF routed commands. It's just saying we want to provide the implementation of that in a more decoupled fashion and that has additional facilities. And the real advantage of this in context of what I was saying about the presenter is now what I can do is have that command, that delegate command's um, handlers be actually in the presenter where those, state, where those state values exist. Where this all gets right. really sweet is you're never hitting the code behind. So commonly the way we've done MVP is we tell people, you know, you go into the view and you click a button and you've got a button handler, for example, then you're going to write some code in the code behind that's going to call down to the presenter. Using this model, you're just wiring 
up in XAML, you could literally almost get rid of the code behind. You'll never hit it. Yeah, and then code behind code was really plumbing code anyway. It's just it was a natural schmutz to uh, to make sure that those things got handled properly. Well, and the hazard with code behind is that it's already there. We, let's just put it in the code behind. Right. Yeah. We need something, dump it in the code behind. Well, and and I do became... get a sense that an awful lot of the stuff you're doing here is really about encouraging good behavior. Absolutely. Uh, using This is the patterns part of... I want to encourage these pa- these good patterns. Exactly. And, you know, I, I recently did a post a while ago on my blog about, you know, Prism versus Framework XXX. And a lot of people, you know, even when we've been at TechEd, say, you know, I want a framework, I want a framework. We do say that Prism in- contains a library within it, which is you, kind of like a light framework. We say a light framework because of the fact that you call it, it doesn't call you. You decide how you want to interact with it. Um, but the guidance, the principles, the patterns, the reference implementation which is included with Prism, which is a, a, a real-world-ish, I'll say ish, because it's not something that's deployed out in the wild, right. application that you can model off of. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. So that, that brings us to defining exactly what Prism is. I mean, we've been really talking about patterns and practices, but is Prism a... Uh, what is it physically? Is it like a DLL? Is it a set of DLLs? Is it an environment? What What do you get? Okay, so uh, Prism is, first off, it's not going to be called Prism when we ship. Yeah, which of course, is, that's way too cool a name. Yeah, exactly. Of course, it's, it's a be code Microsoft name. It's easy to say, something. you know, we got to put about 27 acronyms together. No, no, Brad Abrams was right. He was, 46 syllables. No, Brad Abrams was totally right. If you have a good code name, the product name is lousy. That's why they named Silverlight <laughs> WPFE, right? We're, we're trying to keep that from happening, but bottom line is it'll it'll have a more official sounding name. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like what we're going to call it, it's really two pieces. It's going to be composite application guidance. Uh, is uh, the, Everything will ship. And guidance is kind of a uh, term that basically means some combination of documentation, sample code, what we call quick starts and libraries that you can reuse and, and, and sort of treat like a framework, but it's not a full-blown framework. Right. Um, well, I, I know you're going to be shipping us some code, but it sounds like that's the code that is I'm going to sort of cut and paste into or hack with to use, but then is there also library code? So there actually is a library which we're calling the Composite Application Library. Right. Um, and, and there's also a baseline architecture here. So we have this reference implementation, and what we're saying is we built this based on something, right? If you want to look at this um, reference implementation and say, I want to build something like this, what are the underlying principles and the core concepts? Sort of a brownfield, to use the term. (laughs) Actually, brownfield is, we do, that. it's an important concept that we made sure to address, because that was one of the big downfalls of CAB that preceded is CAB was an all or nothing start from the beginning with CAB or you have no chance of integrating it for the most part. Yes, I'm sorry, composite application block. So that was a a driving principle of ours was that we want to support a brownfield scenario, meaning you have an existing app, you want to integrate some or all of these features, but you don't, you can't start over. So that, you know, we definitely address brownfield, but uh, what what Glenn was just getting at is is just that, that 
that library that we're shipping the, and the, the reference implementation he was talking about is more if you were doing a greenfield scenario, building up from scratch, what would that thing look like at the end? So it's like a series of project templates or you know, and a solution kind of thing. Well, we have a real application. Uh, again, we call it real-ish, but you know, we have a full-blown application that's a line of business application built in WPF. One of the cool things about that is it's very hard to find that in general. Right. And we totally expect that there's going to be a lot of people that are coming to Prism that are saying, I don't need a composite, but hey, I want to see something other than just flashing dials and grids and things. I want to see something that is close to what I might build in the real world. So, but what we say about the, um, you know, the, the composite application library is we see two primary scenarios, and, and he mentioned about the Brownfield, uh, um, Brian, is that one set of customers will look at this as a complete A to Z story. Right. And although those pieces are decoupled, they want to know how I put them together as a puzzle to give me this full end-to-end kind of experience, right? Bearing in mind that Prism is much smaller than SCSF and CAB. I think the, the challenge with doing that kind of thing is you end up with this monolithic application that people will look at, all, try to absorb all at once and go, <gasps> what I really like to see is stages. Like stage one, the first thing you do, and then another project comes right. up that has a little bit more build-out. So we try to do both those things. The reference, app, reference implementation, or RI that he's talking about, is the, the big, giant thing... And it is a little intimidating. It's, I would say it's better than the RI that came with, with the composite application block. That one you opened up and there were like 47 projects in there. And, you know, they choked and died or ran from the room. This one is a little more digestible. But when you include all the testing projects, because we did this in a test-driven development way, there are quite a few projects in the solution. But then we also ship these quick starts, which basically take each little feature that we have, put them in a nice, simpler, digestible chunk to show not only are they separable, but also how do you just focus on that aspect. Good. That, that's very good to hear. Yes, and we have a rule of thumb, which is like quick start should take you no more than 10 minutes or 5 or 10 minutes to get installed on your system. So even our stock trader reference implementation, the full-blown app, we don't have any database. We've mocked that out because we want you to be able to get up and running very quickly. We also want you to realize that the area that we're focusing on is at the UI level. Not sure. everything you see there is completely prescriptive. Right. It's, it's not real. It's, it's sufficient to be able to make the UI elements make sense. Right. So we don't have a business layer. We don't have WCF services. We have services, which is a concept of sort of in-process services that are shared across these modules. Right. But their implementation for the reference implementation are just reading some XML files. Put real implementation here. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, where, when and where is this available? So you can get um, Prism right now on CodePlex. You go to www.codeplex.com slash Prism. We're almost done, actually. This is going to be shipping the end of June. Um, so we, we've actually gotten way ahead of schedule from where we thought we were going to be. That's um, a shame. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be blunt here, are you talking about a Microsoft project that's shipping early? Believe it or not. We've got to call us out once in a while. It does happen. It does you happen. You know, sometimes stuff gets done. I, obviously, it's because you have Brian on the project. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, um, and, and you can go to CodePlex right now and get the bits. Um, and we're, essentially, what we're doing right now is we're in our end game. We're putting a lot of work in on the documentation right now. I've been spending about 50% of my time being a doc writer recently. Nice. And what we're trying to do is give that overview type stuff, the stuff that we've heard from customers that they were missing before. Why do I need this? What can I do with it? Um, et cetera. 
There's also, I mean, as we went through this, I mean, one of the fun things for me working on this was, you know, it was almost think tankish. A lot of yes. the work that we do, we would just sit there and go, okay, what, you know, what scenarios would a customer have? What would be the best way to do this? And we explored a lot of avenues that are not actually in the RI. They're not necessarily in the quick starts, but they're also things we didn't want to lose that that thought path mm-hmm. because they were viable things. So the documentation is going to fill some of those gaps as well. But it sounds like you have a sense of a picture of a future version too, or two. I don't think we actually have that picture yet. Really? We've been extremely focused on what we've been doing now. Um, and I, I know that may surprise some people. Um, but what I, And I want to point out is this has really been an effort that Patterns and Practices has worked very tightly with about 20 different customers. We've had an advisory board that's been phenomenal of some very big players and also some small ISVs and such in the space. One I can mention is IdeaBlade, Ward Bell. Um, have just been phenomenal. And and from the very beginning, we did something that I think was quite landmark. We came to them literally with an open slate and said, here's some ideas of what we think we're going to work on. Help us prioritize. And they have continually helped us throughout the development of this project, where we should focus. We, of course, have to make the overall decisions. Yeah, and having been the advisor side of things on a lot of Microsoft projects before for the product teams, I was really pleased to see the level of participation we had. We had, you know, continual involvement from the advisors, good feedback. They were actually diving into the stuff. Sorry, there's some chanting going on over here. I don't know. It's some sort of religious ritual or some sort. I didn't mean to interrupt there, but it was just. Did you hear that? That's I don't know. You know, you, you never know what you're going to get yeah, here at Tech Ed. Tech they do all sorts of crazy things. Uh, Brian, you weren't on the advisory board. What was your role in this project? I was actually working part-time as a developer on the team. No kidding. But uh, your badge is in blue. Yeah, so I was a vendor. Okay. So Microsoft does actually, especially Patterns and Practices, hires quite a few vendors to help get the work done. Uh, Glenn, what was the motivation? To just get somebody else from the outside involved? I mean, I actually was pursuing Brian for a while to try to get him because I felt that, you know, we want to make sure that what we're doing is really right for customers. Right. We, we get the, I think we have a distinct opportunity in Patterns and Practices to not kind of throw stuff over the wall. Because, and, and part of that, to be fair, is, you know, we're not a product group. We're not in the same way. We're going to sure. ship code. So so, you know, I think we, we got a bunch of experts. Another person we got was Adam Calderon from Internology, sure, yes. who's, you know, premier WPF expert. And we, and we got a good amount of support from people like Rob Raylia and others internally who, and John Gossman who helped to build WPF. So, you know, we're, we're not necessarily experts in everything in PMP, but I think we do a good job of getting in the right experts to help us keep focused. Yeah, and then we and bring our angle on the patterns and the testability and the decoupling. And that's experts both internal to Microsoft and external to Microsoft. Absolutely. Is, does Prism have critics? I mean, I don't know. I haven't heard any criticism of it because I've really just found out about it. I, I think there are those who have been scarred by past things. So, okay. uh, you know, those who turned away from CAB tend to want to uh, condemn patterns and practices and say, I'm not going to give it a chance because they're just going to do that again. But you're not trying to be a web Windows thing here. That's not what No, we're about. not. But I actually think because we didn't focus on that, we actually came much closer to that <laughs> one than we've ever been before. But, I mean, to the, that whole point, you learn from the CAB experience that things have to be different and, and try to back off from the issues that people have with CAD. And definitely, and, and you know, some of the comments we've gotten from advisors, and I would totally agree with this aspect, is 
I think we have, you know, all the capabilities pretty much the cab had there in a much lighter weight form, right. easier to use and more separable, which was what we set out to do. So I'm really happy with the result. You know, as an external guy, I can definitely see recommending this to customers. And this for me was actually a personal mission. When I first joined Patterns and Practices about 14 months ago, there was a huge debate, which was kind of like the cab war of 2007. And there were many people that were coming out and saying that, you know, criticizing and saying that cab is, you know, too much effort for what it brings. And there were others that were coming on the other side. But, and there were a lot of valid criticism, some of which may not have been put in the best tone. But I basically said, look, just because somebody's angry and maybe saying it in a way that's not necessarily the best, we can't discard what they're yeah, saying. That doesn't make it invalid. Arguably, the passion around it is because it is valid. And we brought those people even into the process. Sure, people sure. like Jeremy Miller, who, who was never vehemently angry, but who wrote the Build Your Own Cab series, <laughs> helped us. And others like, um, you know, A.N.D. Orinani, who was also somebody who was very critical of our stuff. We actually pulled them in and said, okay, help us. Yeah, um, what can we do better? And the other, the other group that in general has been very helpful has been the Alt.net community, which um, you know, several of us in PMP have been pretty involved with in, in just helping us say, look, here's a different way you can do this. And so that has really proved to be very fruitful. Well, that's great to hear, uh, especially with you know, guys like that. I know how critical they can be, and, but they know their stuff, so it's, it's really good to involve them. It sounds Absolutely. like you've got a winner on your hands, guys. I can't wait to see it. I'm pretty happy with what we came up with. I am ecstatic. Every customer that I have talked to, I have heard very little criticism, actually. We heard criticism the first time we shipped our first release, and people saw 20 projects and said, wow, that's too many. And I said, well, 10 of those are tests. One of those are acceptance tests. I mean, it's it's actually much less than it looks like. But everybody who has seen this, and we've presented at several events, have all said this looks far simpler and feels like something they can grok. Excellent. Is there anything we missed? I don't think so. Just to call out to all the other members of the team, I mean, we're just a small part of it. So, you know, the folks on Patterns and Practices, Bob and Francis, the Southworks team, Blaine. had other vendors involved. It was a big effort and a lot of people. And all the customers. We really appreciate this. I mean, we really feel like this was, you know, a group effort of all these folks to make this happen. Glenn Block, Brian Noyce, thank you very much. Sure thing. Thanks, Carl. This is Thanks for great. Tea. And we'll see you next time on Gotten It Rocks. Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a toy boy Life is hard